What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the NCP Conversations, where biblical sermons are presented through TED Talk-like fashion. My name is William Kahn, I'm your host today, and today we're doing another episode that is founded in James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, titled, Do the Thing. So let's jump right into this, and we'll get rolling right away here. Once upon a time, a father said to his eight-year-old daughter, Clean your room. And so away the daughter went. After 45 minutes, the daughter comes downstairs. Did you clean your room? The father asks. No, the daughter responds. But I remember what you said. Clean your room. I memorize it. I, I know the three words. I even know how to translate it into Greek and Hebrew. The father, in all his love and care, says, That's all fine and well, daughter, but here you are, full of knowledge while your room sits in all this filth. If you don't clean your room, it will stay a disaster. You won't be able to find the clothes you want to wear. The dirt that is on the ground will infect everything and you'll become sick. Little one, I did not tell you to clean your room. Not only that you should know you should clean your room, but so that you would clean your room and you would live a happier life. It is for your best interest to clean your room. Now go do the thing. This is a common parable I've heard in my life to describe how men and women relate to God and to knowledge in general. You see, there's this simple truth that tells us that even though we think we know what we should do, we don't do it. This parable is obviously pointed towards the church, to theological academics. Using the example of an eight-year-old girl knowing Greek and Hebrew is an absolute absurdity. But to many in the church, we believe that if we only knew more about what the Bible says and how it was communicated in its original context, then, then we would be able to do what the Bible commands. Of course, I reject this form of thinking because I believe the Bible rejects this form of thinking. We've been going through the book of James, and the passage today says the more knowledge doesn't bring about the happiness God promises us. But it's the application of that knowledge of God that will bring about the happiness of God. The truth stands for all people. If you're listening to a sermon for the first time and you're relating to this idea that even though you know what you should do, you don't do it, and you're asking yourself, why didn't I do it? Friends, you're not alone. There are many reasons why we don't do what we think we should do. Perhaps it's because you've missed the point, and the parable of this little girl becomes an accurate portrayal of this. She left thinking her father would be pleased if she memorized her father's words, even translating them into Greek and Hebrew. The point of her father's command was not knowledge, friends. It was obedience. He wanted her to do the thing, not know the thing. He wanted her to clean her room because it would be good for her, because it would make her happy. And everyone, if you're reacting to the word happiness here, because life isn't about happiness, 
I understand we're going to define happiness in a little later, but stick with me for now in this story. The girl misses the point. Sometimes we don't do what we're supposed to do because we miss the point. Sometimes we're not completely convinced that cleaning our room will bring us happiness. Maybe for the academics and the intellectuals, you find it more fulfilling to know something rather than doing it. Perhaps you like your room messy. You value your independence. You have a system. It's a bit of a disaster, but it's your disaster. And you can easily locate, most of the time, the things you need to find. Maybe the honest truth is that it's just too hard. You've left your room in such a disaster, in such a mess, you're not even sure where to begin anymore. Now let's do a little exercise. Let me expand this just a bit for you. Exchange cleaning for fixing and room for life. And let me read that last little bit again for you. Maybe you've missed the point. You know you should fix your life and you've missed the point that you should actually get to doing the hard work of fixing it. Sometimes maybe we're not completely convinced that fixing our life will bring us happiness. Maybe for the academics and the intellectuals, it's more fulfilling to know how to fix your life rather than going about the hard work of doing it. Perhaps you like your life messy. You value your independence, and although your life is a disaster, it is your disaster. And you can easily maneuver, eh, most of the time, your life to find the things you need. Friends, maybe the honest and hard truth is that it is just so hard. You've left your life in such a mess and such a disaster, you're not even sure where to begin anymore. See, a personal example in my life is getting my health back on track. I was finishing up my master's program earlier in 2018 and I gained a substantial amount of weight. Luckily for me, I have been able to shed some of that weight, but I know I have a long ways to go and one of those things I need to do is I want to be, I need to be a healthier eater. See, I love sugar. I love eating sugar, I love tasting sugar, but I eat a lot of sugar and I know, I know that sugar is terrible for you and for my health. So the question is, why am I not following the knowledge that sugar is bad for me? Right? I find it, the reason I find that I am drawn to sugar is because I find it very difficult to cut it out because I love that sugary taste. The question of the day is what would happen if we actually did what we believed? What would actually happen if we did what we actually believed? If the truth is that we don't do what we know to do, the greater truth is that if we did the things we know to do, we would be happy. And this is fleshed out from James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Let me read it for us. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Friends, this is a beautiful passage, followed by this perfect example, and then followed again by four action steps to help the reader on their way to doing the thing. So what is the problem here? Why do people struggle with doing what they believe? Well, I believe there are two large hurdles people have to overcome. Laid out simply, when it comes to following through with change, people either don't know how to or don't want to. When it comes to following through to doing the thing, people either don't know how to or don't want to. The first hurdle, making sure we know what we believe. Therefore, we must clarify our beliefs. People don't do because they don't know how to. Have you ever debated another person on a core belief you've held and that belief has since changed because of that conversation? There have been many of those light bulb moments in my life where it clicked. And I remember thinking, okay, man, that's why it didn't make sense to me. Sometimes I've gone into conversations thinking I knew the answer to something. And I walked away thinking differently because I hadn't seen the topic from the angles others were seeing it from. Once hearing those perspectives and seeing the places where my knowledge was lacking, I was able to make an informational, informed decision. Sometimes it's been worse than that. Sometimes I've gone into conversations arrogantly because I thought I knew all the answers. And after being pushed on some of the details on what I was saying, I realized I knew nothing about what I was talking about. Take this sermon, for example. I've used the phrasing, if we did the things we knew to do, we would be happy. Now any communicator worth their salt would stop to analyze the phrase, what is the communicator trying to say here? And how will the listeners interpret that sentence? See, happy is the word in question here. Because although that might be a right way of wording the phrase that comes out of this biblical passage translated from the word blessed, a listener in 2018 might mistakenly understand the word to be something different. When most, when most North American people use the word happy, they mean it in an emotional sense. They feel happiness. They feel joy, warmth. Happy in North America in 2018 is meant to feel good about something. However, happy, the term used by James here, is meant to portray a sense of wholeness of a person. The happiness would be a living rightly, having integrity. And although it might not be easy for a person while they're doing whatever they are doing, they are living correctly in accordance to who they are and what they've been asked to do. You see the difference from James 
to North American language in 2018. Happy, yet two different understandings. See, here we have to just take the time to explain what happiness means in light about what we're talking about. I don't mind leaving the earlier statement with zero qualifiers because I took the time to explain happiness. However, if I wasn't to explain happiness here, I would have added qualifiers because it's important to note what the communicator is saying and how it's being received by the listeners. If you were to listen to this sermon and walk away thinking if you were to do the right thing and you were to only feel happiness in a 2018 North American understanding of the term, you might shy away from right actions that cause you discomfort. Happiness is doing what we know to be true even though it is hard because it leaves us with a whole integrity-filled person serving us well in life here. See, it is hard to leave your personal information after hitting a car in a parking lot, but that's the right thing to do and you're left with your integrity intact. Fleeing without leaving your information might leave you initially with a sense of relief having gotten away causing damage to someone else, but it takes away your wholeness. It rots away at your integrity and and your ability to live a full, integrity-filled life. Doing what you know to be right might not be easy, but James tells us it leaves us happy. It leaves us full. It leaves us blessed. Knowing what is right and clarifying your beliefs. This might mean breaking down your thoughts and deconstructing your worldview to know what you need to do and to have an integrity-filled knowledge base, not filling in the gaps with space. I've been told that eating sugar is unhealthy, yet I still do it. I still eat it. So, what do I actually know about sugar? Well, at a very basic level, I know it tastes great, and I know if I eat way too much, I get a stomachache. So therefore, I can eat sugar and get away with it if I only eat a certain amount and I don't go past my limit. See, this is an elementary view belief of sugar. Thinking more deeply about those beliefs, I know I have blind spots. So therefore, I have to deconstruct my ideas around sugar. I have to know that sugar does more damage to my body than I see what it is doing on the surface level. I have to know that information every time I reach for a Pepsi or a candy bar. I have to know what my beliefs are around sugar and integrate it into my entire life. We have to know what we believe and reasons for those beliefs. First thing to do the thing is to know how to do it. The second hurdle is that although people may know what to do, they may not want to do it. Here's the kicker. I may know everything wrong about eating sugar, yet I don't want to do anything to change my behavior. Why? Because it's hard work. Admitting your mistakes is hard work. Choosing the healthier option over the unhealthy option is hard work. Feeling the shame as you write down your information on the car you hit for the owner 
is hard work. Look at the example James gives us to those who know the heroes but do not do, not a doer. He is like a man who intently looks at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. James uses the illustration of a man looking into a mirror. I think, (laughs) this is a joke, I think this is a near miss. Because if you had to bet between a husband and a wife who takes longer to get ready in the morning for their day, who would you guess takes longer? Right? And, and the joke is it's women. Men kind of get up in the morning, they look in the mirror, and they look at their face and the disasters that it is, and they kind of shrug and continue on with life. Right? They say, oh, look at that. Look at that disaster in the mirror. I am that. Let's go on. Let's, let's keep moving. We can't do anything about this. Let's keep going. Women get up, they look at themselves, and they say, okay, how can we fix this? And they will stand there until they fix it. They stand there till they do the thing. Here's the truth. We should be applauding those women who do this because it is hard work when men are unlikely to do that. Men, how hard is it to turn your workspace back into its original space? How come every time you go in there, it seems like chaos ensues? Maybe you've left it for quite a while and you think it's going to take a enormous amount of time to get it back to its original glory. Maybe it's just me, but that's how I feel about my car. It just goes from order to chaos, and I think I'll clean it this weekend. And the weekend comes and it goes, and Monday I'm left thinking, maybe next weekend. It takes a large amount of work, and sometimes we're wondering, is it worth it? All friends, we know that it's difficult. The truth is that as we've grown up, we've either made assumptions about what we believed and we filled in the gaps in our knowledge with nothing and we're unsure what we actually believe. See, that's hurdle number one. Hurdle number two is that we're just too lazy to make the changes we need to because it's tough and it's time consuming and we just can't be bothered putting in the effort. Whatever area in our life we're lacking in, if we did the right thing, if we did what we knew to do, we would be happy. But we don't, because either we don't know how to, or we don't want to. There are many people who recognize the right thing to do and have gone out to do it, and they've been rewarded for the knowledge matched with their actions. The greatest person to have done this is Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, lived a perfect whole, integrity-filled life. He would have been happy because he lived rightly doing what he heard to do from his Father, who was God. See, Jesus heard and obeyed. This, however, doesn't mean he lived a happy life considered by 2018 North American standards. Because in the final days leading up to his death, he was betrayed, falsely accused, brought before a ridiculous trial, and eventually dying a brutal death at the age of 33. By North American standards, this isn't a happy life to a happy... This isn't isn't a happy end to a happy life. But, 
James says that Jesus was blessed and he was happy. Why? Because he listened to God. He knew that he was going to be portrayed, to be falsely accused, brought before a ridiculous trial, die the death of a criminal through the murder weapon, which is the cross. He was blessed because through his actions, through the toughness of the trial that he had to face, the unbearable burden he had to carry, he, through his right and glorious actions, would bring many men and women to know God and have a right relationship made between them and God. Jesus is the, is the example James is drawing from here. Jesus didn't just hear, he obeyed, he did the thing. See, can you imagine if Jesus did differently? Jesus saying, yes, God, I know what has to be done. I know man cannot come to you because he has turned his back on you and you need someone to take his place. I know that someone else has to do it. I know all these things. But then he goes away and does not do it. Can you imagine the night Jesus was betrayed instead of willingly handing himself over to authorities when they came to him, deciding not to do what was asked of him? What glorious hope would there be for the Christian? Where would our salvation be? What hope would there be for you and me? Friends, it was through not only Christ's life, it was through his death and resurrection that Jesus made you and me free men, free from the curse of death, because Jesus dying on the cross took your place. He took my place, that we would not be held accountable for the mistakes we made in our past, for the rebellion against God. It was through his life, his death, his resurrection of Jesus, that you and I are pardoned for our past wrongs and we, that we've committed against God. The truth is that Jesus looked at the perfect law that gave liberty and fulfilled the perfect law so that you and I could have liberty from sin and death. The greater truth is that if we do the things that are true, we will be happy. The gospel truth is that we do the one thing that brings us life. We will be fully blessed and complete. What is the one thing that brings us life? It is following and obeying the word. The word also known as Jesus Christ. Friends, it is following and obeying Jesus. That is the one thing that brings us eternal life and life to the full. James gives his readers this beautiful four-step process from hearing to doing. For we cannot just hear the words of Jesus, we must do them. We cannot only repeat the words, clean your room. We must do that which is commanded to be happy, to be blessed, to be whole. The first thing a person must do is look into the perfect law, the law of liberty. Look and know the saving grace of Jesus. What is the perfect law? Well, the perfect law is twofold. It is first, the sentence that requires payments for the wrongs we've committed against God. See, all men have fallen short of the glory of God, and we must be held accountable for that. 
since it is the life of man that is required. It is man's death that is required. Man has no way of doing right by God by himself. The second part of the perfect law is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is the payment that was made so that you and I can go free because Jesus died in our place. He gave us his life so that we don't have to experience death. The perfect law is one that requires life and life is given through Jesus. The perfect law gives liberty because we who are under the curse of death walk free from death, walk free from our past wrongs, walk free in spite of what we've done to God because of the person and the work of Jesus. First look into Jesus and know that only through his life and death do we walk in the law of liberty in the way of freedom. The second thing James tells us to do is persevere. There's different translations of the Bible. The NIV, the New International Version, translates this as one who continues to do this. One who continues to look into the perfect law, the law of liberty. Some have, make it, have mistaken the life, death, and Jesus and resurrection of Jesus as an initial entry into the right relationship with God. And, and so they think that, okay, we're moving past that. We must move on to greater and bolder things. This is wrong, friends. The gospel, the work Jesus did for us on the cross so that we could be made right with God isn't the ABCs of Christianity, but the A through Z of it. It is the whole thing. It isn't the initial part. It is a whole thing. See, the gospel has been identified as something simple that a child can wad through and yet deep enough for elephant to swim in. We must continue. The second thing we must do is we must continue to look into the perfect life of Jesus. Because it is through this perseverance that we'll come to know the truth and grow deeper in love and appreciation for what Jesus has done for us. Look at it again, and Jesus will teach you a new lesson. If the first lesson is to look at the life and work of Jesus, the second is to look at it again and again and to persevere and to continue to turn your eyes to Jesus. The third lesson is not to be a hearer who forgets. And it seems impossible to forget if we take the first two lessons seriously. But men and women, we are fickle creatures. There's a reason there's a letter from Paul to a church in the Bible where he reams them out for reaching for a different gospel than the life and work of Jesus. See, we are tempted to forget what Christ has done for us, to think that is a simple thing. It is not good enough only to know the gospel, but to understand it deeply. Remember when I said it is easy to know a statement and not to understand it? When somebody pushes on what you actually believe and you finally recognize you have no reasons for what you believe? See, some of you know what Jesus has done for you, but you have trouble articulating it. 
and you forget the gospel. Do not forget the gospel. Spend time understanding it, allowing it to fully penetrate every area of your life so that you can continue to seek out areas in your life that are not in alignment with Jesus, that are not in obedience to Jesus. Find things in your life that are rebelling against God and against the Word of God, against the work and person of Jesus and crush it. The last thing to do once you've looked into the life of Jesus and you made it a habit to continually review your life and what Jesus has done for you every day. Once you've allowed Jesus to plant Jesus' work to penetrate every area of your life and allow him to point out ways which you haven't submitted your life to Jesus, then do the hard work of obeying what he says and his calls to change your life. Friends, it starts and ends with Jesus. And we've gotten to the end of the message, the pinnacle of the message. Don't just know. Don't just review it. Don't just allow it to penetrate every area of your life. But to do it. To make the changes. And some of you are saying, I understand, but what if I can't? What if I can't do this? What if I can't obey? Friends, Jesus says two things that need to be said in tangent. The first thing he says is that you must pick up your cross and follow me. This isn't an easy sermon. In the fact that Jesus outright says, this is a hard decision. Some of you have a heavy load to carry. It's a heavy cross and you've developed lots of bad habits along the way. You've developed lots of desires that lead to wrongful actions that will lead eventually to your death. You've got to recognize the things that lead to death and you've got to kill them before they kill you. Pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Find the burdens in your life that are causing distress, that are causing sin, that are causing desires, that are causing death in your life and kill them. This takes time and energy. It means when I come up to sugary drinks and food, I pray Jesus reveal to me and remind me of the truth that sugar isn't good for me and teach me to live wisely. And I put the drink down. I put the Coke down. I put the donut down. And I trust that Jesus is doing a work in me. Sometimes, and, and more to the point of this idea of failing, of not being able to obey, of not being able to do this, right? Jesus says the second thing. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. Some of you have a very heavy burden to, to carry. You have a heavy cross. You have lots of desires, lots of habits 
that are destructive in nature. Yes, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. But here's the beautiful part. Jesus comes to carry it with you. You don't have to carry your burdens alone. If you're feeling unable to do what Jesus asked you to do, Jesus is telling you to place those burdens on him and he'll gently take them and he will give you rest all the while having you learn how to turn from wrongful actions, how to live life like Jesus, perfectly in alignment with God. Jesus is asking to turn your life around 180 degrees and if you're struggling to do it today, ask Jesus to take your shame, to take your burdens, take everything. Ask him to teach you. Ask him to give you rest. Do, try, make every effort to turn from your sin because it's out to kill you. But do it under the obedience, under the guidance, under the gentleness, under the lowliness of heart that Jesus comes into your life with. Because Jesus is there leading you. He doesn't say, pick up your cross and follow me. and I'm going to be 20 feet ahead of you. He says, no, I'm going to come under you. I'm going to bear the cross with you. He's leading you with a gentle and kind heart. And looks to see you succeed in turning from sin and death. He is there for you. Friends, do the thing. Know the love and gentleness of Jesus. Know it every day in every moment. Do not forget that Jesus asks you to pick up your cross and then comes to unburden you from that weight. To walk forward in obedience, even though it's the toughest thing you'll ever do. And at the end of the road, you don't go up on the cross. Jesus does. All the pain, all the suffering, that torture device isn't for you. It's for Jesus. And at the end of the day, the question is, are you going to walk away with the crowds? Are you going to kneel before Jesus? Know the truth, walk towards it. Know Jesus and walk towards him. Know Jesus. Continue to look at him. Don't forget Jesus. Obey Jesus and be blessed. Friends, thank you for listening to today's sermon. I hope you got something out of it. As always, take this as a community of believers and share it with your friends, your co-workers, your loved ones, your family, and learn together as a community of believers. May you go today. May God bless you today and forever. Thank you. I look forward to talking to you in a couple of days.